This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Well, it's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel. And uh, I want to look at confidence in governments, all governments, as this Omicron wave is causing havoc, more havoc with our healthcare system, supply chains, business, schooling, and everything else. Internal polling done for the provincial government shows Ontarians grew increasingly dissatisfied with the government's handling of the pandemic, and it hit a low after the third wave hit. 52% indicated they believed the government was on the wrong track. Now, yesterday, the city of Toronto went into defense mode, explaining their plan for keeping critical services like paramedic services going. And lots of people are fed up with Ottawa, too. The big exception seems to be overwhelming approval for vaccine mandates. Now, I have to say that with the huge numbers of people infected and exposed, I feel some uncharacteristic sympathy for our political leaders. What do you think? The numbers 416 360 toll free one 866 740-4740. And today we have two guest panelists joining us. I'd like to welcome Bob Richardson, who is here often. He's a liberal strategist and senior counsel to national public relations. And Toronto City Councillor Anna Bailao, Ward 9, Davenport, and Deputy Mayor for the South Area of the City. And our regular conservative contributor, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman. Hillard High Road. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Libby. Good afternoon. Now, before I get into this polling, this internal polling for the Conservative government, I want to talk about their announcement yesterday that kids are going back to school on January 17th. So first the date was the 3rd, then the date was the 5th, then it's the 17th. Now, in your opinion, are they responding to the conditions? Are they responding to that polling that I have been mentioning? Let's begin with you, Bob. Well, I think I think part of their problem is is they have been too poll driven, and I think this is an, uh, yet another example of that. Look, I'm a bit like you, Libby. I, I as much as I would like to uh, pile on and dump on these guys for every every problem since the beginning of the pandemic, I don't think it's entirely fair. Uh, but I will say, of the three levels of government, the performance that has been, in my opinion, the worst has been the province. I think part of it has been a leadership issue, but part of it is I think the government of Ontario. Um, needs to be better organized and needs an updating. I think we're, we're still organized like, you know, Bill Davis is smoking a pipe and, uh, and this government needs to be much more, uh, swifter, nimbler, uh, modern. And I think, uh, I think we've seen that throughout the pandemic. Anna Bailao, what's your take on this? Um, well, I, I think that uh, you're, you talk about responding, and I'm not sure if it's a response or a reaction that they're dealing with. And I think one of the major issues uh, that they're having right now is they, they have not been able to explain what the end goal is. So we're going to close schools because we want to have half of the kids vaccinated because we want to have, like, what's the end goal? And I think that's where they lose people, is they can't galvanize the community around the reasons why they're doing some of these actions. And, and I think that is, uh, that is a, a mistake. I think everybody wants kids in school. You hear it from everybody. Well, but uh, people are concerned because they don't understand why the schools are being closed or why they're being open. Nobody understands the reason for one or the other. Well, uh, it's interesting that you say that. Let's let's bring in John because uh, uh you know, maybe I spend uh, either too much or too little time on Twitter, but uh people in the education field 
other than uh, teachers unions who feel unsafe, uh, say the kids have to go back to school. Then you see all the epidemiologists lining up and saying, no, the, the, that's a bad idea. It's going to uh, lead to spread. So I guess the question is, who are they listening to, John? Well, I think, Libby, the fact that you, you're listening to Twitter is probably half the challenge. Uh, <laughs> um, but no, I think, you know, to your question regarding, you know, this, this government's decision with respect to school closing, uh, you know, on the 5th or, or now coming back on the 17th, I think has a lot to do with the, the fact that this pandemic, uh, and, and this variant, quite frankly, has, has been has been changing and it's been rapidly changing over the course of the last uh, number of weeks, if not the last month. And I think the government has to make a decision, and, uh, in, like every government does, with a lot of competing interests. You've got health officials who are saying, shut everything down. This is crazy. We're, you know, the, the cases are, are, are going through the roof. Um, you've got others saying, well, yeah, but, the, you know, this is a lesser variant than others by way of, by way of symptoms and the hospital stays aren't being affected and ICUs aren't being affected. Now, again, that was at the beginning and we're seeing that changing, uh, over the course of the last little while. So the government has to sort of deal with those competing interests. And Councillor Bailau knows as a, as a very successful politician that you have a lot of those interests you have to weigh. The premier is no different. And quite frankly, the prime minister is no different. So, you know, I think what they've decided to do, quite frankly, Libby, is this. Look, let's make this a two-week shutdown, but in the two weeks that it's being shut down, let's make sure that we get booster shots and, and access to accelerated access to booster shots to education and, and childcare staff, and and let's make sure we get N95 masks to the to as many people as possible. So I think the success of this is going to be what has the government done between the closing of the school and the opening of the school on the 17th? Have they done enough to make sure that kids? are um, protected as our teachers and educators. And most, as you see, most parents that I talk to call me saying, get the kids back to school. It's important that they do this. So those are, that's the issue that all politicians face. And I suspect that's why you're seeing a fluctuating support level of all politicians. Bob, I do understand the pressures and, and, and you know, it's, it, it's very difficult times. I just think that um, the government could be doing a better job in their communication. That's what I meant by, you know, people don't understand. Like, what is it? Is it is it 50% of the kids that they needed to have vaccinated? Is it 40? Like, it needs to be clear. What are the goals in order for us? We are doing this to make it safer to have these things all done. And I think they're having a hard time getting that message across because you keep hearing people saying, I want to I get my kids back to school, but I, I don't know what's changed. I don't know what's changed. That's, the, that's what people are feeling out there. Um, this just, just a minute. This just in, just as we were going to, uh, air, I got a notice that, uh, Stephen Lecce, the Minister of Education, is going to make a statement tomorrow. Uh, but again, um, Bob, do you see these changes as, or do you think the public sees it as flip-flopping or is it just uh, responding to changing events? They look chronically disorganized. That's the problem, particularly on the education file. And look, I think Stephen Lecce is a bright guy and a talented politician. I'm not sure it's entirely his fault uh, and that he isn't taking orders from the premier's office. But I, I, I'm sorry, the two-week period is great if they can get a bunch accomplished. What have they been doing for the last 22 months? Why aren't the filters in the schools? Why hasn't the PPE been delivered to all the boards? Um, why haven't we vaxxed all our education workers? I mean, this, this just didn't start two weeks ago. This started 22 months ago, so they look organized. Uh, the second thing is on communications. They pop up and down. Uh, Stephen Lecce, you know, appears to be under some sort of house arrest and hasn't been seen now for, what, almost 10 days? Well, apparently, uh, public, sorry, Bob, ridiculous. apparently okay. there, there are demonstrators uh, outside his home. You know what? I'm sorry, but uh, that's, uh, that is one of the great, uh, I, I'm, I'm not buying that. I understand that there are demonstrators. I'm opposed to demonstrators at politicians' houses. But this nonsense that you can't speak uh, uh, to, to the media for 10 days because you've got a few anti-vaxxers in front of your house is ridiculous. There's this thing called a phone that you can use. There's a thing that, you know, you can Skype. There's a million different things you can do to communicate to people. So let's put that, uh, let's put that excuse to bed. 
The point is their communications has been terrible, and they, they need to do a better job on a number of these things. I think a lot of their problems have been self-inflicted, uh, and, and also they need to do a better job updating us on the progress they're making. If they updated us regularly and said, we've moved this PPA out, these number, uh, this number of filters have been put in place, we're happy, we're working with, uh, with the unions and the boards and others, and we're getting education workers vaxxed all over the place. I think that would lower the temperature uh, among a lot of people. But we're not hearing that from the government, so I think people are thinking the worst. So they've got both a substance problem and a communications problem, and they need to be doing a better job on it. Okay, well, let's move along to uh, another file, and uh, this is interesting. Long-term care, Rod Phillips, I think he had quite a bit of a honeymoon when he was brought in. He looked like he was being very decisive and doing stuff. And then uh, with these new lockdown measures in nursing homes, he's uh, taking it on the chin. Uh, John, what do you think of that? Well, you know, I think he's doing, a, I think he's doing as, as good a job as he possibly can under the circumstances. Like, this is a problem that has been festering for some, you know, 15 or so years, and, and multiple governments in, in Ontario um, have failed to react on, on this issue. And we've talked about that before, Libby, where, you know, there's, there's a systemic problem that, is, that has been plaguing long-term care facilities. And, and it was this pandemic that shone a light um, to everybody in, in the worst possible way. Uh, that that caused everybody to sort of say, oh my God, well, look, there's not enough money, there's not enough staffing, there's not enough over, oversight. There's the, the conflict between the private home care uh, uh, nursing homes and and, and, the, and the public nursing homes. And you know, and I think that there's never going to be enough money. There's never going to be enough uh, attention to the to fixing this problem. I think that what we've seen with Rod Phillips, the minister, since he's been on board, is a a, a much more proactive and a much more detailed. Uh, perspective of how to deal with this issue that has been uh, ongoing for some years. And, you know, the, the Liberals are easy to sort of point the finger and say, well, you haven't done anything. Well, they were in power for 15 years, quite frankly. They, they, they've done nothing on this file. And and, and the, Rod, the reason why Rod Phillips is successful, the minister is successful on this issue, or, or is trying to be, is because as Minister of Finance, he knows where the money is. He knows where and how to get money out of the province in order to put to the long-term care. And we saw, you know, leading up to the last little while before the lockdowns, a lot of announcements of, of yeah, new but, facilities, but John, of I'm, new I'm, staffing, of new controls that are being put in the long-term care, which are going to help. But it's going to be a long time before something just gets turned around. Yeah. Um, Anna Bailao, uh, what do you make of, uh, I guess, the turnaround in uh, the public's reception of him? Um, I, I think John is right on, on saying that it, this pandemic actually highlighted uh, systemic issues that we had on several fronts, and, and long-term care is definitely one of them. Um, I think that uh, he had his uh, uh, short honeymoon when the pandemic was somewhat under control, and the pressures now continue as they continue in all these sectors, and, and those systemic issues come up again, and, uh, and he needs it, it's a long-term plan. Um, it, it, I think it ha- he has the capacity to uh, deal with the different stakeholders to um, improve uh, that perception once again. Uh, the next few months will be crucial, I think, for, for the file, depending on how um, Omicron is going to um, do inside our long-term cares. Um, but, but we do know that these staff issues are definitely uh, um it, it, it's a challenge for a long-term care home, and uh, and and uh, the next few months are going to be crucial for for Rod Phillips for sure. Now, Bob, you've been saying that they need to communicate more details about exactly where they're at. Uh, I think the city of Toronto is doing that, and there are a lot of people who who like are sick of hearing from them on on you know, every single increase in vaccination or this or that or the other thing. Uh, what do you think? Well, uh, number one, I think the level of government that's done the best so far has been the municipal level. Uh, I think they've appeared organized. I think the mayors, uh, the key mayors across the province have done a good job. Uh, Mayor Tory in Toronto, Watson in Ottawa. I think both Mayor Brown and Crombie and Peel have been excellent. Uh, and they've been good communicators, and they've been out there regularly. I think we all get a little bored of their message sometimes, and you sort of see them, and you want to run and, and put your uh, TV on mute. But, but look, they're, I, they're I can tell you that job. happens at home a lot, and it's not me. 
<laughs> they, they're doing the job that they need to do, and they've been effective at it. If you take a look at the vaccination rates uh, in in those communities, as an example, so I give I give good marks to uh, the municipal people. If I could make one quick comment on the long term care thing, I generally agree with John. I think one, all parties can take a bow for where we're at in terms of long term uh, long term care today in Ontario, and two. I think actually Minister Phillips has been quite effective for the government. I, you do see him regularly. He is out there. You do get a sense that he's working on the file. It's not perfect, but that, but we, we've got an adult out there in charge trying, uh, trying to make things better. So I, I would give kudos to uh, him for his performance to date. Hmm. Okay. So nobody, cause he's taken a lot of flack this week. Well, but he's going he's gonna to continue to take flack. Libby. Anybody in that portfolio, uh, and Bob and Anna and Councillor will know uh, very well that there are certain portfolios in government that, as, as you know, as a young as a person who wants to get into politics and you get elected, uh, you, you kind of cringe when you get asked it, and that's yeah. one of them. It's a tough one because there's no you, you never win on that, and and, it, and it's not about winning. It's about trying to do what you can, but you've got limited resources and time to get stuff done. Uh, when it's that kind of a monumental uh, feat that has to be changed and, and perception. And, it's, it's and with an aging population and the situation yeah. also in the healthcare system, the challenges are quite large. It's not all, even the, the, the long-term care system that we have today, but it's how do we prepare for the tomorrow, which yes. has bigger challenges. Uh, let's move along to, to Ottawa. What about Ottawa, I mean, uh, they're in charge of some of the resources. Uh, and uh, again, uh, I hear from a lot of people who are sick of Justin Trudeau, John. <laughs> oh, can I take this one, Libby? Sure. <laughs> well, look, um, and, and, and to, be, to be fair, you know, I've actually given the, the Prime Minister credit where, when, when credit was due. Um, things like, you know, his, the most recent shutdown of the borders when, when Omicron became a bit of an issue, I thought, you know, I, I gave him high marks for that. Um, I was critical of, of the Prime Minister early on in the pandemic when he wasn't shutting down the borders fast enough or, you know, he wasn't procuring the uh, the vaccine as quick as other you know, G7 nations. So there's been times, but like, look, and I think we've all talked about this before, where, where politicians during a crisis that has never been done before, there's no playbook on this, you know, is going to be a challenge because you've got competing interests, as I mentioned, from stakeholders, but also you've got health professionals, not only who, um, you know, but you've got, you've got NASI uh, in the U.S. And, and Dr. Fauci saying one thing and then changing his mind. You've got all the health professionals and health authorities here in Canada uh, saying one thing and changing their mind. And politicians are trying to deal with all of this information. So, you know, the prime minister is no different. So I, I, I give him that, that due from that perspective. But where the issue is this, and this is something that he, I think, politicized vaccines during the federal election campaign, which should never have happened. I think the, the whole issue of vaccine and non-vaccine has been politicized. And I'm a very much a pro-vaccine person. And I just got my booster shot last week but but that's become politicized and it's continuing to be politicized but also i think the federal government has certain things that they can do as a national government uh without stepping on provincial jurisdictions that's the challenge he's had quite frankly but i think pointing fingers and saying well the province aren't doing enough and this isn't happening and the province saying well we haven't got enough supplies i think that becomes the the part where most ontarians in fact canadians turn the tv off and say you know what a pox in all your houses Hmm. Let's take a call from Sita in Mississauga. Hi, Sita. How are you? Hi. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Nice to have you back. You can take a horse to the water, but you can't force it to drink. The government is doing all they humanly can to send out a message out to take the vaccine. Our government is giving out so much money to the school, hospital, long-term care, etc. So how are they spending the money? Where are the beds, the ventilation, or why can't they spend the money on equipment necessary to, for protection? It doesn't have to always be about money, All too. It can be common sense. Thank you. Okay. Well, you know, a lot of stuff, uh, you know, by the time uh, people realize they need it, uh, it's very hard to get hold of. Um Sorry, I thought I heard somebody starting to talk there. Uh, yeah, I, on, on on the federal government, uh, Libby, you know, I think that they have done some things. I would say the majority of things right. They've made some errors, too, as well. thought they did a good job keeping the economy going with CERB, SEBA, a variety of other programs. 
think they did a pretty good job overall on vaccine procurement when you take a look at it from an international perspective. I think they did a pretty good job moving PPE out to the provinces, including rapid tests. Ontario, as an example, by the end of uh, January, will have 260 million of them. So I think that they've done a relatively good job there. I agree with John. I think they were kind of slow uh, on the border issue um, off the top, much better now. The whole hotel, hotel thing was a fiasco yeah. uh, and, and poorly run, and, uh, and uh, that should be sort of looked into. But I would say overall, I would give them pretty good marks. And, you know, the prime minister has worked hard uh, with the provinces. I think he's had 40 meetings with them in the last 22 months. Um, and, and the other thing where I think the prime minister did a good job is he's been accessible regularly to the media, you know, during the early parts of the pandemics on a daily basis. I think he did 80 press conferences in a row. By the way, I might add in both official languages. Uh, so, you know, I think he's done generally a pretty good job. But uh, the federal performance has by no means been perfect. And uh, there's lots of room uh, for improvement for everybody across the board. Anna Bailao, in terms of the opposition leader, you know, I thought he was just sort of getting on the right side of the vaccine issue, at least in terms of majority of people. And then suddenly last week, there he goes off again. Uh, What do you make of that? Well, it depends on the day of the week. Um, because honestly, I can't, I can't keep up what the position is. And I think that's going to be the problem for Torontonians to understand where the leader of opposition stands on that issue. I, I, I honestly think so. I think that's going to be a big weakness for him, um, because he hasn't, um, been very convincing of what his position is on, on, on the issue. Which, well, which uh, I don't understand why, given the polls that everybody's seeing as well. I think not only is the right thing to do, but I mean, Canadians are clearly uh, in, in, in favor of that. But um, it's, uh, it's been disappointing for sure. Yeah, I have a, a lot of people here who think it should be mandatory. I mean, the federal health minister, who, by the way, does not have that much skin in the game, um, used about mandatory vaccination for everybody. Uh, Bob, I mean, is, is, is that should we should we brace ourselves for that? I think that's probably unrealistic. I think there's some jurisdictions in, in Canada where that's just, I don't think Alberta's going to buy a mandatory uh, vaccination policy. So I think, again, this is an area where the federal government has to work with the provinces. And you just said it, Libby, the people who have the most skin in the game uh, on health care in this country uh, is the province. Uh, the federal, the, you know, federal contributions at about 15% used to be as high as 50, 30, or 40 years ago. That changed for a variety of reasons. So they're not the big player in healthcare in this country. It's more the provinces. So the feds have to tread a little carefully uh, on this file. Um, and, you know, they can lead, but they can only lead so much given uh, given the amount of skin that they have in the game. So it's uh, welcome to Canada. It's, it's, uh, it's a little uh, complicated when it comes to its governance. And this file's a, a perfect example of that. Let's take a, a, a call from Jean in Palmerston. Hello, Jean. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So I'm, I'm going to get on my soapbox again. You've heard from me before. I work in rural health care. Um, my son, over Christmas, their daughter was in class, in school. One child was ill or tested positive. The entire class was put on isolation, including their parents. So we're now seeing so that 60 parents say that are not working. And in our world, in healthcare, that is decimating the healthcare world. We are going to be in dire, dire straits. So we had two people in the unit I work in, very small units in a rural area, but it's a, it's a key service. It's essential for our patients, life supporting. Um, we had two nurses who were off because they'd been in contact, perhaps with somebody. So they were put on contact tracing our occupational health department is so overwhelmed they haven't got back to them we have nurses sitting at home testing negative but not able to come to work because there was a contact so my concern with going back to school is some of the children are vaccinated lots of parents are very supportive of it i certainly support vaccines but it's the testing and the tracking public health has abandoned it they just cannot keep up 
they will get to you eventually, but they're asking people to self-trace, and that is an almost impossible task for people to do. So then people inadvertently come across somebody who's COVID positive. Some people are more susceptible than others. Some show symptoms. Some haven't got a clue, but we're testing people all the time with these rapid tests. There's no cohesiveness to this, but the underlying or the base result of it is hospitals, it's the world Gee. I'm in, other ho- areas as well, they're decimated. They don't have any staff. Yeah, well, and they're going to have less. Yeah, we just heard uh, that the new protocol for the kids going back to school is that if there's one infection, they're not going to send the whole class home and they're not going to do that. So you have to wonder what that's going to do. But I hear you. Right. I'm sure it's a very difficult situation out there. Thank you very much for your call. And I'm uh, looking at the clock here and uh, we are almost out of time. So my last question to each of you. Uh, fairly briefly is, do you think that there is an overall kind of erosion in Canadians' respect uh, for authority? Anna? Um, I think people are tired, and obviously, um, you know, the the, um, the easiest one is is to target that that, uh, fatigue, that uh, some anger that there is at the people that are making some of the decisions, in particular if they don't understand it. Um, uh, I think we can recover that, and and then that's why I think that the communication, the transparency, that involving people in and the rollout and and the the rationale behind some of these decisions, I think, is so important. John, twenty seconds. I think I think that you know politicians are are the front line in in, in a sense of communication and, and on policy issues. So it becomes a challenge with respect to how they deal with, with that. And, and of course, if, if things are going bad, they're going to, it's going to be reflected in the polls. If things are going good, uh, people's minds change. Bob, last 20 seconds to you. I think people are tired and crabby, but if you give them a sense that you have a plan, they'll, uh, they'll give you the benefit of the doubt. They've done that with our municipal leaders pretty much across the province. If they sense there is no plan or if they sense there's, uh, uh, there's chaos, they're tired and crabby, and you're going to hear from them. Okay. On that note, we wrap things up. Thank you so much, Bob Richardson, John Capobianco, and Councillor Anna Bailao. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, Mayor Patrick Brown of Brampton. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Today's numbers again show the strain on our health care system with a record number of single-day admissions to ICU. The stress and the backlogs in the hospital reverberate through paramedic services. And over the last few days, we've been hearing about code black situations in Toronto, in Durham, in Peel. And that's when there is one or less ambulance available to respond to calls. Now, it's all being made worse by large numbers of paramedics off because they're either sick or exposed. And yesterday, Toronto's mayor defended the city's plan to handle this. Our paramedics and other first responders are working together to adapt to this temporary situation, including cooperative arrangements, to make absolutely sure that people with urgent health situations receive the service they have the right to expect. While our emergency management group review these challenging number, these challenging numbers every morning with Chief Raftis, any life-threatening call remains the top priority, even if response times to non-urgent calls may be altered from time to time. So what is the situation in Peel, particularly Brampton? Let's bring in the mayor of Brampton, Patrick Brown. Hello and happy new year. Happy new year. Always great to be on your show. Thank you. So, uh, how worried or are you worried about the situation in Brampton with paramedics and ambulances? Well, let me say, I think we're all worried about staff shortages uh, across the board um, in Ontario right now, and and I'm sure across the country, Um, but we are managing. Um, And what I mean by that is there's always uh, solutions. And so there was one day, I know in PO last week, that we faced a similar situation that they had in Toronto just recently, um, and we're we're adapting, and so we're facing staff shortages with paramedics, like we are for firefighters, police, nurses, physicians, and so we've taken casual 
paramedics, so people that work part-time, and offered them full-time hours temp- temporarily to help us get through this this um, period. I do think this crunch is going to be short-term. It's not a long-term challenge, um, so we can handle it. And anyone that needs um, a firefighter, a police officer, a paramedic um, in Peel, there's going to be one available. Uh, in, in addition, I mean, it, to, to, to my understanding, it's not just an issue of, of the staff, but the actual ambulances. I mean, you see these ambulances backed up at the hospital mm-hmm. waiting with their patients for the patients to be taken in or admitted. It, that that is a um, a legitimate um, concern that we have because of the staffing shortages at the hospital right now. There's also a backlog with um, getting patients out of the, the 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 ambulances, and so there is a longer wait time right now at the hospitals. Um, but that's something that we're working with our hospitals to address as well. Well, it seems to me that this is not necessarily a new thing, and I remember from years back having this conversation about perhaps changing the protocol so that you don't tie up a paramedic and an ambulance while you're waiting for the hospital to do the paperwork or whatever it is that's necessary. No, you're, you're, you're right. This has been an ongoing conversation for a long time, and a number of, of hospitals in different parts of the province have adapted to that or trying different ways to, to make sure we don't have people tied up um, during that, that, that exchange. Um, but I think this has really put a highlight um, on why this needs to be addressed. Um, I think the staffing shortages have, have really enhanced this, this problem. Uh, so what are some of the solutions to it? Well, we, it's about having the, the right people, um, the right people available to, to do that transfer and, and freeing them up. And so if you have an ambulance and a police car that are tied up at the hospital waiting for for someone to be available. Um, you know, we talked about this issue a few a few years ago in relation to mental health patients, where you literally had a police officer and ambulance waiting for the mental health worker to arrive, and so they had to hire more mental health workers to help um, with with this um, with, with 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 that situation. So right now, just making sure that we have staff available in the hospital that can make sure you don't have the ambulances tied up. But the hospital partners are very collaborative with this. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm confident that they're going to be able to handle this, this temporary challenge we're having right now. Um, you know, I was on a call with, with mayors just yesterday, and we were talking about the, the COVID challenge. Uh, John Tory hosts a weekly GTHA mayors meeting where we collaborate on different approaches on, on how we can address these challenges. And this was one of those challenges that every city was facing. Uh, what in in a few minutes we're we're going to uh, bring on Mike Merriman from uh, the paramedics union, but uh, he's had dire warnings. What's your reaction to that? Well, I'm I, I'm glad that they're they're flagging those concerns. We need to make sure that we have adequate staffing, um, and and para- paramedics have been on the front lines of this pandemic from 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 day one. I can't speak to the situation in in Toronto. I guess that's where your guest is 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 from. What I can say is that we're able to handle it in in Peel and you know the senior leadership of the paramedics there have told me um that that we're gonna be okay. It's not gonna be easy. We've never had staff shortages like this, but um but they're gonna they're they're gonna handle it and anyone that needs an ambulance it will be available and and, and for the public that may be nervous about this, um, you know, we're we're going to be okay. Well, I mean, some of the guidance, frankly, is is confusing because you know I read things where it said, "Well, if you can drive yourself to the hospital, do it," but don't do it if if it's anything to do with your heart or a stroke. I mean, it's it it's confusing for people, and and I'm also wondering, uh, do you have a sense of how response times are affected? Um, I think response times obviously are going to be affected by by all of this, um, and and I can tell you in, in in Peel we went into this with our hospital system being being challenged. I remember being on your show talking about how we were over a hundred percent capacity. So wait times at the hospital are obviously going to be longer, um, but um, I think the key issue is um, 
the service will be available for, for whoever, whoever truly needs it. Okay. Mayor Patrick Brown, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Okay, before we go on to Mike Merriman, I'm going to take a quick call from Dennis in Brampton. Hi, Dennis. Hi, Libby. Thanks for taking my call. I'll be brief. We're suffering from a chronic underfunding of health care in the province of Ontario, which is not a political statement because all parties have had a hand in it. Uh, we are the lowest uh, spending per capita on health care in Canada. I spent 40 years in the healthcare business, 22 of those at uh, in Brampton, and uh, I've been away from it now at least 20 years, and nothing has changed. We have a revenue problem, not a spending problem. And that needs to change, or we're going to face this. There's absolutely no uh, built-in capacity for events like this, which we can expect to happen again in future. Okay, Dennis, thank you for that. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Okay, well, as I mentioned, there was a dire warning this week from the paramedics union, and uh, this was after that incident that we referred to where there were no ambulances available to respond to a life-threatening call last Saturday, and as many as 50 of those paramedics were stuck at hospitals, which is the situation we've just been speaking about. Mike Merriman he is a paramedic and the EMS unit chair for QP Local 416, and uh, he's skeptical about all these assurances. He joins me now. Mike, thank you for joining us. Good morning, Libby, or sorry, good afternoon, and uh, thanks for having me, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. Uh, so, uh, Mike, uh, what do you say to uh, Mayor Brown in Brampton, uh, John Tory yesterday in Toronto, assuring people that, that things are things are going to, you know, things are different, they're affected, but that, uh, you know, not to worry? Well, at least within Toronto, and from a personal note, I, I have a seven-year-old granddaughter who lives in Toronto who is an asthmatic, and at some point in time, hopefully it doesn't happen, but she'll require a pre-hospital uh, paramedic intervention, and I am not confident in uh, what any of these politicians or EMS leaders are saying, that she will get in an ambulance in a timely fashion. In fact, that is quite uh, frightening and concerning to me that she will in the event that happens. And that's already proven itself out, which we uh, put the tweet out on. That was a identified as an immediately life-threatening call, that there was no ambulance available to send. Now, I'm not sure. I, in all honesty, I don't know how long it took before an ambulance did become available. But the point is, there was no ambulance available at that time to send. In the size uh, in a city, the size of Toronto, you know, the biggest ambulance service in the country, municipal ambulance service, um, it's uh, totally unacceptable. The system is in dire straits. Um, you know, the toll it's had on my membership, they're exhausted, they're defeated, they're uh, um, totally demoralized. Um, you know, the crux of the problem is, and I go back to your uh, previous caller, the caller called in there, Dennis, um, and former healthcare worker, and thank, thank him for his services to healthcare. But he's hit the nail on the head. The The crux of the issue is there is no surge capacity in the system whatsoever. I've been said, I've been, uh, I've been, uh, sounding alarm bells for years. I think I've even talked to you before, Le- oh, yep. uh, Libby, on yep. how bad the situation let, let me is. Just, let me just, uh, mm-hmm. ask you a couple of questions. So first of yep. all, do you know the person involved in that call last Saturday? Do you know if they're okay? Um, that I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the details on that. Um, but, um, you know, they, they, the politicians, the leaders of the services, they have spoke about call diversion, meaning we'll always get somebody to higher priority call because they can always, we can always divert the unit uh, responding to a lower priority call to the higher priority call. And, you know, that's kind of standard procedure how the system works and understandably. But, you know, I can go back several years ago where I did, I believe it was with CBC, a big article, because... There was an elderly woman. The call came in as a lower priority call. They tried to get seven, seven ambulances tried to get to her and they were all had to be diverted to higher priority calls. That woman died. That woman died waiting on an ambulance because they couldn't get one to her. That's, you know, and that was several years ago. 
And again, regardless of sounding alarm bells, nothing has changed in the system. There's no surge capacity whatsoever. So now it's at the breaking point. And I would uh, like to Mike, make... Mike, uh, just Sorry, another ahead, question here. Um, mm-hmm. Last year, uh, another 200 paramedics were hired and there was 6% in funding. Not enough? Not enough. Obviously not enough. I believe we, we had a... Uh, the city funded a POMAX review study. I'm not sure. It goes back to several years ago and... You know, we needed 500 paramedics then, and uh, obviously council was not going to put out to hire 500 paramedics in one shot, so it's been trying to catch up. We also have the attrition, which is a little bit higher right now, and we're still far behind the eight ball. There's been just too many years with a, you know, on an average, uh, the past decade, the call volume has increased on an average of 4.5%, and there just has not been enough uh, catch-up um you know, to comp- to compensate for that. And uh, even before COVID, we could, you know, we we had great difficulty servicing calls. And now the COVID's hit. Well, you know, here we are. Uh, a final question. Uh, as I was discussing with Mayor Brown, part of the issue is having ambulances and paramedics stuck waiting at the hospital for their patient to be taken in. And I remember years ago, there was talk about changing that protocol. Oh, exactly. And, and, and it's such a, I'm glad you mentioned that, Libby. It's a good point. I mean, I, I, what the public needs to know is I think, you know, it sounds like politicians have tried to spin this as, well, this is something new and this is causing all the problems. No, this isn't anything new. We've had offload delay off and on. There's peaks and valleys. Obviously, now we're in a peak. That's been occurring for years. And again, you have to compensate in the system for that. Yes, I'm not denying Toronto had 50, uh, 50 ambulances tied up in offload delay. Couldn't get out of the hospital over the over the weekend, but you know you should have had another fifty ambulances out there to compensate for that. It, you know your previous caller that called in is absolutely right. It's the you know there has been bare bones funding for the entire healthcare system, not just paramedic services, by whatever political party over the years. I'm you know I'm not just blaming municipalities. It's it's the the, the province has uh, has been negligent as well, and and they need to step up and. I would like to point out, uh, Libby, because I um, we're we're, uh, we're, uh, we're running out of time. So last fifteen well, seconds. Okay, I just like to point out because you know I I have been quoted as saying the system is on the verge of collapse, and to quantify that, uh, on one of the news, uh, some of this press coverage, there was a Toronto firefighter who called in uh, to one of the news shows or whatever. Um, he wished to remain anonymous, which is understandable because his chief's running the show now. But he phoned in um, to basically, uh, out of concern, because they had a patient because we uh, that they responded to that was uh, was bleeding, apparently was bleeding quite severely. They had trouble controlling the bleeding, and they actually called for a cab to put this patient in because no ambulances were available. And the firefighter had said, it's, oh. I have never seen that in 32 years. So okay. if that's not the verge of collapse, then uh, I don't know what is. Okay. Uh, Dire warning from Mike Merriman. Mike, uh, thank you very much for your perspective. Thank you. Always a pleasure, Libby, and stay safe. Okay, you too. Uh, We're taking another break. When we come back, Dr. Peter Uni. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Well, as you heard in Chris's news, a record number of people were admitted to ICUs yesterday. There was a total of 3,220 patients hospitalized, 477 in intensive care, as well as 250, that includes 250, on ventilators. Now, we have no idea how many people are infected. So where does this leave us, and what is some of the advice for those who are managing the disease or what they think is the disease on their own. I'd like to welcome Dr. Peter Uni, the Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID-19 Advisory Table. Happy New Year, Dr. Uni. Happy New Year. Is this the first time we talk since then? Uh, yes, you're right. Yes, yes. You've been talking to Jane. I've been off. Yes, of course. Of course. You're back. Welcome back. Thank you very much. Uh, so at first, I, I want to get over, uh, go over some of the rules about testing since so many people are on their own. Uh, a lot of people are relying on rapid tests if they're lucky enough to get it. But a rapid test, um, if you test too soon, it, it, it will give you a false negative, correct? 
Yes, that's correct. And it's particularly a problem at the very beginning. You know, once you're over the peak, you know, you've had your diagnosis, you started to have symptoms and you're sure it is COVID, um, then the, the rapid test is actually relatively reliable, only that's not necessarily when we need it. It's still then useful to say, okay, I'm clear, rapid test is negative, you know, I don't have to self-isolate again. But at the very beginning, we need to be extremely careful right now. We're currently looking into that, you know, whether we can make rapid tests more useful by uh, using, you know, different ways of sampling rather than the nose, the mouth. But uh, this is all work in progress right now. So right now, don't trust the rapid test, you know, to say, okay, I'm clear, it's negative, all is hunky-dory. That's not true anymore with Omicron. Uh, the other question, you mentioned uh, a, a negative rapid test. I know that with PCR tests, you can still test positive after you've gotten over the disease. Is that the case with rapid tests? Yeah, the rapid tests then have an advantage there, you know, since they heavily depend on the viral load we're having. Once you have had a positive test, uh, a rapid or a PCR, your diagnosis is established, you know, when your symptoms start. And then when you start to, uh, again, test with a rapid test, perhaps five or seven days after, when the viral load is low enough, it will become negative. And then that's a reasonable way of just approaching that and say, okay, my rapid test is negative. My viral load is low. My immunity has kicked in. I'm on the way out. You know, things are normal again and I can go back to normal. That's the idea here. Uh, now, a lot of people can't even get a rapid test. So uh, we're being told to assume if we have any number of, uh, you know, basic cold symptoms, uh, assume you have Omicron. Yeah, exactly. Look, um, this makes unfortunately perfect sense right now because it's really quite safe to assume that roughly 10% of the population right now in Ontario are just infectious. Right now, as we speak, you and I. <clears throat> and uh, so if you have symptoms, the most likely cause for it is indeed Omicron. And the guidance, and please correct me if I'm wrong, if you have these symptoms uh, or if you test positive, you're told to isolate from five days since the onset of symptoms. But if you still have symptoms, you should go until they're over, right? Yes, indeed. <clears throat> and again, remember, all of these guidances we have, they're just there for purely pragmatic reasons. We still need to keep things feasible. We need to keep the society going, the economy going, etc. And this is just a way of dealing with that. This is not, you know, based on firm evidence, you know, regarding these five days, etc. The point here is we just need to find a way to go through this wave and there will be an end of the wave and then things can change again. And again, I, I had this conversation with some emergency docs yesterday. How do people know if they're in trouble? Because I know that in the first wave, uh, it kind of snuck up on some people. Yeah, you mean when they're in trouble medically? Yeah. Look, the most important part really is when you start to um, realize when you walk or walk up the stairs, for instance, that's a really good test from my perspective, that you start to uh, feel breathless. You know, if you just sit in a chair, it might actually happen. And we've seen this really in all the waves that people crash. You know, they don't realize that they get worse and worse and uh, they, they, they uh, don't get that part. So if you start to see you're in trouble with your with uh, breathing, that you get breathless and you haven't before, that's when you need to uh, talk to a healthcare professional. Mm -hmm. um, uh, another thing that's hard to get is a little device called an oximeter. Absolutely. If you have one, if you can get your hands on one and you have COVID, to uh, basically measure the uh, the oxygen pressure in your uh, in your blood, that's really good. And should you do that after walking up the stairs or while you're sitting? Oh, you can do both, but also do it when you walked up the stairs. You know, that's actually really quite sensitive. That's a really good suggestion that you're making. You know, if you uh, if on room air, you actually drop below 94%. With this, and this is not just because you put it on, you know, in, a, in the wrong way. You know, you just need to test that. So don't freak out if it goes, uh, you know, down to 88 for a moment. It may just be because you didn't put it on your finger properly. But if you do it properly and it falls uh, below 94%, you really have an issue there. You know, you can say so you start to uh, typically you should be at 95%. 
or so. Um, uh, but uh, if it's then below 94, then it would uh, start to say, mm, I probably would need to talk to somebody. And uh, if it's uh, below 93, then it's clearly need to go to the merge immediately. Uh, the bad news is those things are on back order too. <laughs> yeah, it's a problem. Therefore, I'm saying, you know, but what you can do is just walk up the stairs. And if you then say, uh, uh, that's not as it was five days ago, then you have an indication, okay, something's off. Hmm. Um, we are beginning to run out of time. What is uh, your other advice for people who are at home, not sure if they have it, not sure if they don't have it? Uh, what, what do you want to tell us? Well, if in doubt, play safe and assume you have it. You know, this too shall pass. Um, follow what we just said before. And the point right now is we all just want to interrupt the chain of transmission, uh, meaning also inform people, you know, who have had contact with, if you think it could be that, and that, so that really everybody can react very early. Our task at hand right now is to make sure that our hospitals are not completely, completely overwhelmed. They're already struggling, as you both, as we all know. Um, and uh, that's the most important part, you know, and things will change after a few weeks. And again, uh, do you have any sense of whether we're peaking or uh, when that might happen? It's very difficult to tell right now. I'm uh, starting together with one of my colleagues to analyze wastewater data on a broader level um, tonight. And we will see how it goes. You know, I will be very interested to see what's happening now with hospital occupancy end of this week. Whether we continue to see exactly the same steep slope upwards or whether this slows down a little bit, this will be an early sign. What I see, which is really great, is that the mobility has decreased massively in the province. This is always a sign of, you know, decreased contact. And this actually has happened again, as last time people are just great, you know, before the public health measures kicked in. Uh, and I would hope that we start to see that things get a bit brighter than uh, end of this week, beginning of next week. But uh, the, the peak of the wave, that's very difficult to tell. I would expect this still happens in January. And uh, final question, uh, are you worried about the return to school next week? Look, I think there's no such thing as a safe place anywhere unless you're a hermit. No, we need to be aware of that. But it's also very, very clear. First of all, schools are really essential for the well-being of our children. And we have good evidence now also from this province that school closures are associated with disproportionate harm. That's one of the aspects. The other is we can get our kids vaccinated. That's great. We mask up. We have ventilation that is much better than in many other places. And I think it is important that they can get back to school and our own, you know, children in a, in a, in a regular uh, public school go back to school as well. There are seven and nine. Okay. Dr. Peter Uni, thank you so much for that good advice. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me again. Bye-bye. Bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.